and trust that the Lord will bless as we turn to Daniel chapter 6 this evening. So let's just pray and then we will get to the scriptures. Father, we just come before thee again in the precious name of the Lord Jesus. We thank thee that at the end of a week we can come together like this to open scripture and to seek to learn its truth and to know the benefit of sitting under the sound of thy word. And so, Father, by thy spirit, we pray that thou would give us good understanding of the text and of the lessons that we should learn from it. We pray that there may be something that is in the text tonight that would resonate with us in our own particular circumstances, whatever they may be. And so, Father, we just ask for thy blessing and do so in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. So, Daniel chapter 6 is a reading. And we'll just read the chapter through. I was just saying to Jeremy, this is the the last story of Daniel that you can really tell children in a children's meeting, and perhaps the best known one at that. So Daniel chapter 6, we're going to read the chapter together from verse number 1. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 princes, which should be over the whole kingdom. And over these three presidents, of whom Daniel was first, that the princes might give accounts unto them, and the king should have no damage. Then this Daniel was preferred above the presidents and princes, because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king thought to set him over the whole realm. Then the presidents and princes sought to find occasion against Daniel concerning the kingdom, but they could find none occasion nor fault, for as much as he was faithful, neither was there any error or fault found in him. Then said these men, we shall not find any occasion against this Daniel, except we find it against him concerning the law of his God. Then these presidents and princes assembled together to the king and said thus unto unto him, King Darius, live forever. All the presidents of the kingdom, the governors and the princes, the counsellors and the captains have consulted together to establish a royal statute and to make a firm decree that whosoever shall ask a petition of any god or man for thirty days Save of thee, O king, he shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the decree and sign the writing that it be not changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which altereth not. Wherefore, King Darius signed the the writing and the decree. Now, when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went into his house and his windows being open in his chamber toward Jerusalem. He kneeled upon his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he did aforetime. Then these men assembled and found Daniel praying and making supplication before his God. Then they came near and spake before the king concerning the king's decree. Hast thou not signed a decree that every man that shall ask a petition of any God or man within thirty days, save of thee, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing is true, according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which altereth not. Then answered they and said before the king, That Daniel which is of the children of the captivity of Judah regardeth not thee, O king, nor the decree that thou hast signed, but maketh his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was sore displeased with himself, and set his heart on Daniel to deliver him, and he laboured till the going down of the sun to deliver him. Then these men assembled unto the king and said unto the king, Know, O king, that the law of the Medes and Persians is that no decree nor statute which the king establisheth may be changed. Then the king commanded, and they brought Daniel and cast him into the den of lions. 
Now the king spake and said unto Daniel, Thy God, whom thou servest continually, he will deliver thee. And a stone was brought and laid upon the mouth of the den. And the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords, that the purpose might not be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and passed the night fasting. Now there were instruments of music brought before him, and his sleep went from him. Then the king arose very early in the morning and went in haste unto the den of lions. And when he came to the den, he cried with a lamentable voice unto Daniel. And the king spake and said to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, is thy God, whom thou servest continually, able to deliver thee from the lions? Then said Daniel unto the king, O king, live forever. I always find it incongruous that he says, O king, live forever, as he's talking out a den full of lions. My God hath sent his angel and has shut the lion's mouth that they have not hurt me. For as much as before him innocency was found in me, and also before thee, O king, have I done no hurt. Then was the king exceeding glad for him, and commanded that they should take Daniel up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no manner of hurt was found upon him, because he believed in his God. And the king commanded, and they brought these men which had accused Daniel, and they cast them into the den of lions, them, their children, their wives, and the lions had the mastery of them and broke all their bones in pieces, or ever they came at the bottom of the den. Then King Darius wrote unto all people, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, Peace be multiplied unto you. I make a decree that in every dominion of my kingdom men tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, and steadfast forever, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed, and his dominion shall be even unto the end. He delivereth and rescueth, and he worketh signs and wonders in heaven and in earth, who hath delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus, the Persian. That's our text. So we meet a new king in chapter 6 and verse 1. And the story really has been, I suppose, of Nebuchadnezzar and then Belshazzar, and now you've got this king Darius. And at the end of chapter 5, if you remember the story with the writing on the wall, the handwriting from the last week, and you remember I tried to sort of paint the historical background and from secular history what actually was taking place with the shift of empires and with the surrounding of the capital and then how the capital was taken um, as they came in through the river Euphrates and then the king was overthrown, slain that night and the kingdom gone. And then at the end of that chapter, verse 30 of chapter 5, sums it up and says, And that night was Belshazzar, the king of the Chaldeans, slain. And Darius, the Median, took the kingdom, being about threescore, sixty-two years old. And now you have the story of this new king, who is king over a new empire, the empire of the Medes and the Persians. And so you're introduced to this new king. And this new king is further identified in chapter 9 and verse 1, and it says, In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of the seed of the Medes, which was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. Now, secular historians have long uh, used the part that this man plays in the story of Daniel to seek to disprove the authenticity of Daniel as a book. 
And they've struggled to find this man in secular history, although I think they perhaps have found him now. Sometimes it takes a while um, to catch up with the Bible, but they found him now, I think, and so it's less of an issue. But it won't long was an issue, and Darius' um, his presence in Scripture was seen as a bit of a problem to secular historians. But we come to this and we understand that he plays quite a vital role in this book. And so you've got this whole story of Daniel in, well, I'm saying um, to William, is it a den of lions or a lion's den? I'll let you work out which one it is. It's one of them. It's maybe both of them, but it is particularly one of them. And he's cast in there and he survives. He's not expected to survive. He's sentenced to death and a horrible death at that by being cast in there. But nonetheless, he survives. And it's a story of faith again, as it has been throughout this book of incredible trust and faith, spectacular faith with spectacular outcomes. And my takeaway from these stories is not that I should be living my life daily with spectacular faith expecting spectacular outcomes, but rather the principles that you see in these events, which were one-off experiences in a big life of faith, but in these one-off experiences, their life of faith is demonstrated and you see the component parts that go up to make this life of faith. And these are the aspects that we learn from. So you're not going to put yourself into harm's way and cry a test and tempt God and expect him to deliver you from the equivalent of a, a, a lion in a den, etc. But nonetheless, this life of faith, when the crisis came, meant that Daniel and his three friends could stand and they didn't fall and they weren't overcome. So we're going to get through this chapter as we do, um, not necessarily verse for verse, but section by section, uh, and see how the story unfolds. And first of all, in the first three verses, we see that this is a new king, and it's the same old story with a new king, which is that Daniel is doing what Daniel always did. Daniel honours the king. He's a secular king. But Daniel honours the king. And it ever has been the way that God expects his people to honour those whom he has set up in administration over the nations and over the nation of which we form a part. And so we're expected, and it's taught in the New Testament, you know this, that we're expected to pray for and we're expected to submit to authorities, civil authorities, at whatever level, as long as those civil authorities are not in conflict with the law of God. And so there's that expectation and that is because human government is seen as an instrument of God in the promotion of that which is right and also the punishment of that which is evil. And they fail terribly because they're sinful men and women. And as a result of that, they fall well short of God's expectation for the role of government. But nonetheless, God expects order. He expects government. He expects rule. And he lifts up and sets down those to do that task for him. And by the way, those in government will one day have to answer to God and they'll have to give an account for their stewardship of the authority that they wielded for God, even although there was probably no expectation or understanding of that with them. So you come here and Daniel is doing what Daniel always did. He's honouring the Lord. And it's interesting that there was a consistency with this man. And he honoured authority even when the authority changed. 
And when one was overthrown and another rose up, and then he was overthrown and another rose up, he still honoured the authority to which he was subject to. It's interesting when you go back and you see this consistency. For example, if you go back to chapter 5, you'll see it in verse number uh, 12. Here's the character of Daniel, and it's noted in, in the experience of Belshazzar. He says this of Daniel, For as much as an excellent spirit and knowledge and understanding, interpreting of dreams and so forth, this is the character of the man. He had an excellent spirit and knowledge and so forth and wisdom. And that was true under Nebuchadnezzar. And then also you find it in verse 13, true under Belshazzar. He was known as someone who was wise. He was known as someone who had an excellent spirit. He was known as being trustworthy, diligent, reliable. Someone who would speak words of wisdom and someone who would serve well. And it appears when you come to chapter 6 that Darius has the same opinion of this man. He's the great survivor. He survived a change of empire and he hasn't been diminished in the slightest. And so his skill set and his character are recognised by those in authority and therefore he rises again to a position of significant leadership. And it was a wise decision by Darius to do so. And so Darius sets up his government. He's got 120 administrative districts in the whole kingdom and then he promotes over those 120 satraps uh, three high officials it's a very wise way to rule a diverse empire so he's got regional authorities those regional authorities report into a more centralized small group who then report into the ultimate authority and over the three high officials of whom daniel was one then Daniel is, I should say, the, the most senior of these three presidents in verse number two, of whom Daniel was first. So he's first amongst equals. He's second in the kingdom, basically, to Darius. And this is a huge empire. This is, this is the largest empire in the world at this time. And God has placed his man as number two in the largest empire that exists on earth the greatest military power of its day. And I find it interesting in what it says in verse 2. This is why Daniel was first, that the princes might give accounts unto them and the king should have no damage. So government corruption is not a modern invention. And Darius has set up what he sees as checks and balances to regional power. And to avoid corruption, they have to report into the three high officials. And to avoid corruption amongst them, Daniel is chief amongst them. He's a cut above the rest. You see that in verse 3. Then this Daniel was preferred above the presence and princes. Why? Here it is again. He had an excellent spirit in him. And the king thought to set him over the whole realm. <clears throat> now sometimes you might think, that in order to realise some ambition or to achieve promotion or to fulfil whatever role you seek to gain and fulfil, then you need to act in a certain way. You need to act unrighteously. You need to compromise what's right. You need to tell lies in various ways. You need to somehow 
behave in a way that's different from the way that you would understand a Christian to behave, to get on in this world. Here is an example of a man who did not do that, and yet God took him to where God would have him. Sometimes I think that we want to go to places where God would not have us, in his purpose, as individuals. To either go beyond or go elsewhere or do something else and we can scheme and we can, we can act in an unrighteous way and an unchristian fashion and our character cannot be the character of Christ and then we get there. And then we, we, we kind of think, well, God's placed me here and God hasn't placed you there. You've scrambled and fought and cheated and told lies and been unrighteous and you've managed to get yourself there. But that may not be where God wants you. And you may find it a place of disaster for you as a Christian. It's a big deal when you're younger to have your mindset that you will be content to be where God will put you, where God will place you. Yes, you'll be diligent. Yes, you'll work hard. Yes, you will submit to authority. Yes, you'll do your best. All of that should be the case for all of us as Christians. And if God will take me there, I'll go there. If he won't take me there, I am not going to behave in a way that's inconsistent with being a Christian in order to get there. And Daniel's an example. There are other examples where God takes someone where he wants them to be. Think of Joseph. He's another example. And it's not always high office. It can be wherever God would place you in a workplace, in a factory, in a place of education, wherever. And you're content to be where God has taken you. And you'll serve him the best you can. And if he will have you somewhere else, you'll trust him that the door will open without you battering it down. And you won't need to behave in an unrighteous fashion to get there and to stay there. Here's the lesson of Daniel. He was a cut above the rest. He was different. Now, let me be frank. That difference that marked Daniel very often will mean that you may not go places in this world. And the righteousness that characterised Daniel might be something that employers or whatever don't want to see in you. Well, so be it. So be it. And this is the key to Daniel's success this is the key to Daniel's consistency. An excellent spirit was in him. Daniel was right in the inside. And the outside displayed that. He was trustworthy. He was reliable. And his excellent spirit was recognised by those who wanted someone to trust. It's a great thing, I think, if you as a Christian are seen as trustworthy in your place of employment. It's a great thing in friendships to be known as someone who's trustworthy. That what's inside you is seen by others. And so here it is, an excellent spirit. And as I've noted, this was consistently true of Daniel. It wasn't that he went in, in sort of fits and starts and he was like this sometime and then in another context he wasn't like that. There was a consistency about this man through a long period of time. God has worked 
God has been at work in his character and in his life. And so, for example, he's characterized by wisdom that's the same wisdom that comes from above that is spoken of in James chapter 3. The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy, good fruits, impartial, sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. This is the character that we ought to display. This is the wisdom that we ought to manifest. It ought to have this characteristic. And this is the character of a man or woman of God. And he serves faithfully. So in verse 4, of course, that provoked envy amongst his peers and aggression and actually caused them to seek his death and to scheme against them. It didn't mean he was popular amongst those that were around him because he showed them up and they schemed. And it's interesting to me that one of the reasons that they really find it difficult to bring Daniel down is said in verse 4, they could find none occasion nor fault. For as much as he was faithful, neither was there any error or fault found in him. So they're scrutinising these two men and the others, and they make it their business to scrutinise this man's life, and they are going to bring him down. Now, Whenever the press turns on someone, again, I'm not going to mention things, but obviously you don't need to look at the news cycle for very long, and it's always someone's turn. And the press decides to focus in on an individual, and they can tear their life apart. And when they begin to look into life, things come out. Things from the past, pictures, stories, people pop up to tell of their experience. And before you know where you are, you have all of these skeletons in someone's cupboard on full display for the national media. That was interesting. I thought it was going to happen, I think it was yesterday, where a couple, you might have seen this uh, on the news cycle, a couple had decided not to uh, allow uh, a man and a man to come and view their property and had explained that it was because of what they believed in uh, about the Bible and they weren't going to sell. And they put this in a text to this couple and then before you know who you are, it's in the national media. And then it began. And so they began to try and find out what she did for a job, what he did for a job, and then to dig into the path and they began to try and find out every skeleton they can find to discredit these people. Well, Daniel could withstand that level of scrutiny. Because of his consistency. Because he could allow people to dig into his life going back. And as he's an older man here, his life not just at the present, but his life to that point withstood that scrutiny. Hmm. Not sure mine would, I'm not sure your would. But his did. And in his Secular sphere, they could find no fault. Did his work well. And there was no error or fault in him either. So in what he had done in terms of his task, in other words, there was no big scandal, no big fraud. He wasn't taking, you know, kickbacks or anything like that. And in him as a person, he withstood scrutiny. And here they then turn and they thought, you know, in verse 5 they say, how are we going to get this man? And they say, look, 
The only way we're going to get it is if we find something about the law of his God. So it dis- you discover this, that Daniel was living such a righteous life and it was being attributed, obviously, by everyone round about to the fact that he was following, implementing the law of his God. They thought that was a weak spot. And he was so committed to it that they could scheme round about that commitment and create a trap for him because they knew there were certain things that were non-negotiable with Daniel. There was a consistency and a pattern of life that was predictable and that predictability was going to be used to trap him. You know, think about yourself. I mean, if folks said, you know this, what rhythm of life, what routine of life, what is something that Stephen, or you put your name in there, does all the time, without fail, it doesn't matter the circumstances, it doesn't matter the pressure, what does he do consistently that we can form a scheme round about it? How many of us would genuinely put our hands up and say, our prayer life, that's it. That's the core regular thing in my life. If you want to trap me, scheme round about my prayer life, it's so predictable. I never miss it. At the same time, every day, without fail, come what may, I'll be found in prayer. Well, I won't actually, to be honest, to be honest with you. And how many of us could... This is, this is the challenge of Daniel. They thought it was a weak spot, but the core strength of his life they thought was a weak spot. But it wasn't a weak spot. the absolute powerhouse of his life. It was the key to the whole thing. And they were going to target this because they knew this. They knew that he was absolutely committed to the law of his God. And it's interesting to me that Daniel's righteous life was built upon that foundation. So there wasn't a disconnect between the two. When they saw that he was so well favoured by his king, they looked at him and they knew that they could trap him in the matters of the law of his God. It wasn't as if he was this man one day and then when you went to his private life, he discovered he was a, well, what we would call a Christian. It wasn't that there was a a disconnect between the two. It was both there in one person. It's interesting to me, in Ezekiel 14, the prophet puts Daniel in the same company as Noah and Job in terms of their righteous lives. That's the company he's keeping. The second thing to notice about this is that Daniel's relationship with the Lord was not crisis-orientated. So it wasn't that when the crisis came... He was praying and he was depending upon the Lord and he was living according to the law of God. But when there was no crisis, then there there was no prayer. When there was no crisis, then there was no dependence. No, it wasn't like that whatsoever. His relationship with the Lord was not crisis-orientated. It was consistent and it was daily. So that, get this, when the emergency or crisis presented itself, Daniel was already ready. Already ready. He was already prepared for the crisis. No preparation required. Only a continuation. And so what had been true of him a week before 
would be two of them this week. There's no crisis next week, that's fine. There's one this week, that's fine. The same life's going to be lived when there's not a crisis and when there is a crisis and that consistency will do for both. Here is the absolute ambition that should be before us as the Lord's people to have a life like that. Not like a sound wave, but to his flatline. Not at a mediocre level, but to have a consistency and to have that whether the crisis is on or the crisis isn't on. So when the crisis does come, no change is required. Same old, same old. Just the same. That's the story of Daniel. And his daily communion had so shaped his character, he was ready. When do you think Daniel made the decision to go in to that den full of lions? When do you think Daniel was prepared for the crisis that saw him go in there? When do you think that decision had been made? That was to settle many years before in Daniel's life. This was it just actually happening. The cost had been counted. The life had been set in a certain direction with a certain character Come what may. Now remember this. Daniel doesn't do anything different in this story. He just did exactly the same as he always did. Same as he always did. You see, I do think this, that sometimes if you read certain books or listen to testimonies and whatnot, there is a slight danger, I would suggest to you, that you can think that um, a life lived for the Lord in order to be pleasing to the Lord has to be lived at a state of complete excitement and drama, spiritually. That's just not true. And if you do have that mindset, you will never sustain it. You will be up and down, up and down, up and down. You will go through periods of extreme um, elation and then periods of utter frustration and um, disappointment and you'll grieve at your own failure and all the rest of it. You see, Christian life is not to be lived at a state of that level of excitement and drama. It's to be lived at a consistent, sustainable level of fellowship and relationship with the Lord that when the drama comes, you're ready. But the drama's not there all the time. Life's not like that. And I think as Christians, we don't struggle in the moments of drama. We struggle in the bits in between, which form the majority of our lives. It's the getting up and going to your work. It's being at work. Most of your life in your working life spent with people who are not Christians in relationship with them. That's the key area. And then you're back home and it's the routine of family life and all the rest of it. And it's the kind of consistency and the grind. These are the things that bring real pleasure to the heart of God. And it's the... It's the you know, in relation to your assembly, your local church, it's the building in consistently week after week after week. 
It's the turning up, it's the doing, it's the moving the chairs, it's the getting things done, it's the taking part, it's the whole life of the assembly, not the, 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 the flashpoints of excitement or drama. It's the consistency of life that prepares you for the moment like this. And so when do you start to get ready for a moment like this? Because there may well be in your life a moment like this. Not many, but there may be some. And it may not be as dramatic as this. It probably won't be. But to you, at the time, it will seem dramatic. It can be health. It can be money. It can be family. It can be something. And you're shaking. And you're maybe under attack or... You're maybe having a crisis of something within your family. Whatever it is. When do you prepare for that? Well, the answer is, you start preparing right now. And you start preparing by establishing a sustainable rhythm and routine of communion and fellowship with God. That's key to a life as a Christian. You know, I'll be honest with you, it took, me, it took me a long time to learn that lesson. Because when you're younger, you see others and you try and emulate others and all the rest of it. Uh, and then it dawns on you that the really hard thing about Christian life, I say it so often, is doing the ordinary consistently. That's the really hard thing. Not the spectacular occasionally. That's the easier thing. And so, here is Daniel. What an example he is. And yes, men sought to destroy him. There's no question. In verse 5 down to verse number 9, these evil men are trying to entrap him in, and there's hostility. But of course, we understand that is the case. When someone is living such an obviously righteous life, then they're going to attract Satan's attention. Genesis 3.15 onwards predicts that there's going to be continuous hostility between God's people and Satan's people. And you see it play right out through the Old Testament into the New Testament. The Lord Jesus warned his disciples, if you follow me, remember this, what I'm experiencing, you'll experience. In this world, you will have tribulation, he said. Life's going to be rocky. It's not going to be easy to be a Christian. Those who wish to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, Paul writes to Timothy and tells him. Peter warns about that in 1 Peter chapter 4. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though some strange thing happened to you. And so here is something that is not unexpected. It's fierce, but it's not unexpected in its essence, which is hostility from unbelieving sinful people. And so they say this, as I mentioned in verse number five, listen, let's go to the law of his God. We'll find something in there and we'll, we'll see him destroyed. Not demoted, but actually destroyed. And what they do, and I'm sure you know the story how it unfolds, I've read it already, already. and you have the joining together of political rivals as, as happens, you know, with the Lord, and, and you find that Herod and Pilate come together to execute the Lord Jesus, to get an opportunity not to take it, and so it is here. And they come and they're very clever because they play upon the vanity of this king. And vanity is one of the great, great 
Um, failings of humanity. It's a vice that makes you act in a very foolish manner, and that's what happens here. And he's boxed himself into a corner, Darius. And he has been blinded by his own vanity. So they come with this decree, signs the decree, and so on. And of course, they then go hunting Daniel. It doesn't take them long because they know exactly where he'll be and they know when he'll be there. They know exactly. And as soon as that's signed, they have their victory. So what does Daniel do? You say, well, Daniel doesn't have a clue what's going on. Not so. Look at verse 10. It's a key expression. Now, when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went into his house. Okay, so Daniel, you know that what has been signed forbids you to pray to your God. That's what you know. You're second to the king. You know the power of the king. You know that the law of the Medes and Persians can't be changed. This has been written down. This can't be changed. Here is the unbreakable law. Daniel, you're a smart man. You know what's going to happen if you break that law. I love the fact that this is such ordinary language. It's almost as if there's not even a misstep. There's not a break in his... In his there's, no, there's no agonising about this. Now, when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went into his house and his windows being opened in his chamber toward Jerusalem, he kneeled upon his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks for his God, notice this, as he did aforetime. For Daniel, it's business as usual. That's it. He did this yesterday. He heard about the writing today. He just keeps doing it. Now, this isn't stupidity. This isn't arrogance. This is just Daniel's fellowship, communion with his God. And nothing will disturb it. Not even if he's going to pay a price for it. He's going to be faithful to God. He's going to honour the Lord. And so here we have his character not being forged in adversity, but being displayed by adversity. Please don't think that the Lord will, this is a mistake, I think, that the Lord will take you into adversity and Christian character will be forged in that adversity. Rather this, that Christian's character is slowly, slowly, slowly shaped and forged over a period of time. Through that consistency, non-dramatic life rhythm of, of being in the Lord's presence, of, of proving him in the small things and the daily things, of making decisions between right and wrong in things that are inconsequential, but you still make the right decision and you make the right decision for the right reason and you get into the habit and rhythm of it and it begins to build character and it begins to build instinctive now reactions to things. So you don't need to think about it. You don't need a special promise box verse. Because this character is being shaped in you by the constant water of the word of God that's moulding and shaping you like the drip, 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 the slow shaping of an object. And that character, when the conflict comes isn't suddenly dramatically changed by it. It's just manifested by it. It shines brightly under the adversity. It shines clear and the gold is shining through 
because the dross is being just taken away and Daniel isn't any different when the issue comes as when the issue's not there. It's just being displayed. I always think it's a dangerous thing to think that somehow whenever you go into a time of testing as a Christian, you're going to be dramatically changed by it. The truth of it is that when you're dramatically changed by crisis, when the crisis passes, you're right back to what you were. Because that's actually what you are in character. And it's that slow-build character that stays. And the flashpoint changes when, you, you know, something comes into your life and you say, I'm going to be different, you know, I'm going to do this. I'm, I'm never going to get involved in that again. And, and the crisis has caused you to make decisions and all the rest of it. And the crisis passes, these just fall away. They fall away. And that is why, there's, there's lots of things you can take out of That's why, for example, spirituality is not an overnight process. That's why Christian maturity is found in years of living and not 10 minutes of being a Christian. That's why, for example, leadership amongst the Lord's people is not for those who are new to the faith, not for a novice, because it's, it's Christian a character proved in the small things of life over a long period of time. That's what, that's what shapes it. And so here we have Daniel, and he just keeps doing what he's been doing. What was the biggest temptation to Daniel here? Well, I think it was a simple one. Same as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The biggest challenge to Daniel was to stop doing what he always did. To stop it. To not pray. To turn his back upon God and to explain it away in whatever way he could. And there would have been any amount of ways he could have explained this away. Rationally, reasonably. I mean, he could pray in secret, surely. The Lord would understand. I mean, his life's at stake. Surely the Lord placed him a second in the kingdom, and so he doesn't want to be rash, he wants to be reasonable, and... If the Lord wants him there, then it would be foolish for him to actually sacrifice that um, by, you know, disturbing this. Any amount of explanation and any amount of rationality. No, he just prioritizes what's right and leaves the rest with the Lord. And so they pounce. And if you were doing a flannel graph, which probably most of you have never even heard of, if you were doing, and I mourn the passing of flannographs, um, they were fantastic. You, Abraham looked like Moses and looked like Elijah, and they could be all things to all men. Um, you used to like a good flannograph, didn't you, Jeremy? Yes. So flannographs are great, but do you know, I don't know why I mentioned a flannograph there. <laughs> but anyway, um, you've got Daniel here, and, and Daniel, the, this kind of story that's being told, and, and you, know, you, you know it's got a happy ending and that kind of thing, and you know it's told to the children and all the rest of it. They scheme, and they have Daniel sentenced to death to be savaged by lions. It's a horrible death. And so the thing unfolds, the narrative. I'm sure you know this story well. And Daniel gets eventually thrown in, Darius, into the, the den and 
he realises he's been very foolish, but he's been outmaneuvered. And there's nothing he can do. And so in, in Daniel goes, and the thing is sealed. There's a lovely allusion here to the sealing of the tomb after the death of the Lord Jesus from the sealing of the tomb here. And he knew something of Daniel's God because there's an echo of what had happened with Nebuchadnezzar. And he basically says to, says to Daniel, there's nothing I can do, You're in the, and, but trust your God uh, and your God will, will deliver you from this. And in he goes, cast into the den of lions. May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. I find it interesting that you hardly hear Daniel speak in this chapter. You remember Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego when challenged by the king said, we've got nothing to say to you in this matter. It's interesting to me that very often in this narrative that those who were in the right said very little. And in that they are very much like our Lord who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not. And there was an economy of words in a moment of crisis. An economy of words in a moment of crisis is a sign in these narratives of wisdom. And they commit themselves to the Lord. That's why they don't need to say too much. It's in the hands of God. And so, and he goes. And well, we know the story that actually the Lord did intervene and the mouths of the lions were shut. You can sing the chorus. And Daniel wasn't harmed and he was in there all night. And Darius is pacing about the place and as the thing unfolds in verse 19, he arose very early in the morning. Again, you see the analogy with the tomb of the Lord Jesus, Mary Magdalene, and the other Mary at the break of dawn. And suddenly, and no doubt to his joyful surprise, Daniel speaks. Will King live forever? He's, he's, I mean, he's, there's lines round about him, and he's saying to the King, live forever. And he speaks interestingly, respectfully, wisely, and he explains that the reason that he had not been savaged by the lions was this. He had a clear conscience towards God and he had a clear conscience toward the king. The two things. He wasn't hiding anything. He hadn't done anything wrong toward his God and he hadn't done anything wrong toward the king. And on that basis, he had trusted God to save him. And God had saved him. And it's interesting, just as in chapter 2 and in chapter 3 and in chapter 4, the outcome of this is not that Daniel is to be lauded and praised, but that Daniel's God is to be praised. I mean, you imagine if you'd survived that. I mean, can you imagine? Imagine how many book tours you could do on the basis of that. Um, you'd have a podcast and everything going and all the rest of it, and you can imagine how the the intro would be. But you can imagine that there would be a platform for building your own fame and fortune out of something like that. But I find it interesting that 
Nebuchadnezzar praised the God of Daniel in an increasingly reverent fashion as he goes through his experience. Now in chapter 5, there's no such prayer from Belshazzar, but he was long past that stage. And here we have it in verse 26 and in verse 27. And Daniel, uh, Darius virtually encapsulates the whole book of Daniel in this pain of praise, really, this song of praise, that he says that in every dominion of my kingdom, men tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. He is the living God, steadfast forever. His kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. His dominion shall be even unto the end. He delivers, he rescues, he works signs and wonders in heaven and earth. He delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. It's all about God. It's all about the Lord. And that really is what faith is all about. It's not the size of our faith that really is the issue. It's the size of our God in whom we have faith that's the issue. And our faith may be weak, but our God's not weak. And our faith may be small, but our God's not small. And if we honour him in the regular rhythm of our life, and if you don't have a rhythm and a discipline for life, you should have. You really should have. Even, you know, however young you are, you should have. It will stand you in great stead as a Christian. And whatever you find sustainable, you make sure you have a routine of reading your Bible and praying. Whatever you find sustainable. And you build it slowly, slowly, slowly. But regularly. That's the key. Regularly. You know, I used to find reading plans. I don't know how many reading plans I started and never completed. I mean... I used to think that if I tried something different, it would have more success, but, you know, chronological and then all through, you name it, all the rest of it. And eventually I did think that um, there was a time where a reading plan actually became a hindrance to me rather than a help. And if that is the case with you, and you get put off reading your Bible because you've started a reading plan, you've fallen so far behind, you've given up, just put your reading plan to one side. Just put it away. There's no dictate as to how much of the scriptures you need to read every day. But just make sure your Bible gets opened at some point in the day. And you do read, likewise with prayer. Just start in a sustainable way and allow over time that to build without any drama. Just the regular rhythm of Christian living. Trust this might be a help to us and a blessing. Let's just pray.